0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. On today's podcast, everything is quite workforce related. We'll be talking about some numbers that Nick's crunched looking at GP partners across England. We'll be looking at some predictions about workforce figures from the Health Foundation, and talking about latest developments on visa problems facing international medical graduates coming out of GP training. We'll also be discussing the latest Health and Social Care Committee hearing on the future of general practice and talking about PCN concerns about recruitment under the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme. And finally, there's some good news about an award for the NHS in all four UK countries. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, we've spoken about the falling GP workforce many times on the podcast and also about the falling number of partners. But Nick, you've been wading around in the workforce data over the past couple of weeks, crunching the numbers and looking at what's happened to the number of GP partners in different parts of England. As ever, it seems not all areas are equal when it comes to workforce challenges. Firstly, can you explain what you looked at and what you found about what's happening to the number of partners?
1: So we know that at a national level, numbers of GP partners have been in decline for some time. Uh, Going back to September 2015, there were around 21,600 full-time equivalent GP partners. And by March this year, that had fallen to just under 17,000. So that's a 22% drop in just six and a half years. Obviously, the GP workforce as a whole is in decline, but it's worth pointing out that partners are disappearing much faster than the GP workforce in general. So in September 2015, partners made up around three quarters of the total full-time equivalent fully qualified GP workforce, whereas by March this year, they made up just three fifths. At a national level, GP partners are disappearing fast. But the, the, the analysis we just published looked at how this slump in GP partner numbers is distributed across England. We wanted to see if it was uniform across the country or if there were areas losing partners faster than others. Um, And we we compared figures for March 2019 and March 2022. And what we found is that there are big differences between regions in the rate at which GP partners are disappearing. I I looked at the data at the level of integrated care systems or ICSs across the country. And even at this fairly zoomed out level, there are massive regional differences. The number of full-time equivalent GP partners has actually dropped in every ICS area over the past three years, our analysis shows. But in Nottingham and Nottinghamshire... GP partners dropped by nearly a fifth in that three-year period. That's the worst affected area. And meanwhile, at the other end of the scale, in Surrey Heartland's ICS, GP partners dropped by only 3%.
0: Yeah, it's quite a bleak picture, isn't it? You also found quite big variations in the number of partners for every 100,000 patients in different parts of the country as well. So while numbers of partners are falling, the numbers of partners per patient is also quite varied across the country.
1: So what the figures show is that there are nearly twofold differences between ICS areas in the number of GP partners per 100,000 patients, from just over 20 in parts of London to the high 30s in other areas. And the point of looking at that was to try and see if there are areas losing partners fast that already have relatively low numbers of partners per patient, and there are a few where this is the case. So, Lincolnshire, as well as Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, ICSs um, are in the bottom ten for partners per hundred thousand patients, but they're at the upper end of the scale for the rate at which they're losing partners. So you could make a case that those are areas where the partnership model of general practice is under real threat.
0: Are there any common features about these areas? For example, are they the same areas that our investigation into underdoctored areas found earlier this year?
1: The, the areas do overlap to some extent. Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, uh, which you know, I mentioned are among the areas losing partners fastest, are also underdoctored uh, compared to the average. So whereas Surrey Heartlands, for example, where partners are shrinking slowest... Uh, has below the national average number of patients per GP. So it does look like there may be some association at the top and bottom of the scale in terms of the rate at which partners are disappearing with the overall level of workforce in each area. Um, And and of course, it, it makes sense that in areas where the GP workforce overall is less stretched, there may be less pressure on partners and those partners may be less likely to want to leave.
0: We know partner numbers are down across the board, as you've been talking about, but what are the implications for areas where partners are falling the fastest, do you think?
1: Well, a 2019 review of the GP partnership model uh, commissioned by the government said that partnerships had underpinned general practice since before the establishment of the NHS and were thought to be a major component of the success of English general practice. And one LMC chair, Dr. Carter Singh from Nottinghamshire LMC, told me this week that neglecting the GP partnership model risked the collapse of general practice. Uh, he said that general practice runs off the goodwill of partners, because in his words, they they don't clock off until the waiting room is empty. So the warning here really is that in areas where partners are disappearing fast, general practice may struggle to keep going. And ultimately, the same argument applies nationally. So these are warning signs that the government and policymakers really need to take action to address.
0: Well, with some more news about partnership models coming up in a bit, there really is obviously a mountain to climb when it comes to recruitment and retention. Some listeners may have seen a story we wrote a week or so ago about predictions around the GP and practice nurse workforce. This was based on an analysis undertaken by health think tank, the Health Foundation, So the top line figures were that the NHS in England is on course for a shortage of nearly 11,000 full-time equivalent GPs by 2030. And one in four GP and practice nurse posts will be vacant. So at the RCGP conference a couple of weeks ago, I actually went to a session where the researchers who did that piece of work were presenting this data in a bit more detail. And it was actually really interesting, some of the things they were talking about. So first of all, it's probably important to mention that these figures are predictions and that almost 11,000 shortage figure was based on things remaining exactly the same as they are at the minute, you know, so basically current policies continuing. But the research has also modelled a more optimistic and a more pessimistic scenario. So the pessimistic scenario assumed negative impacts such as policies not being properly implemented and a lack of long-term planning, which is actually something we kind of see at the minute anyway. But that prediction found that we could be 20,400 GP short by 2030, which is pretty horrifying. And even the optimistic scenario, which assumed greater action on recruitment and retention, found we'd be 3,300 GP short by 2030. That's not great. But that optimistic scenario means that one in 10 GP posts would be vacant compared with one in two posts vacant in that pessimistic scenario. So I think what they were trying to show is there are things that could happen to swing this one way or the other. The picture for practice nurses was even more bleak, if that's possible. Across all scenarios for practice nurses, workforce projections were far below demand. And even in the most optimistic scenario, the number of practice nurses basically flatlined. It didn't go up at all. So practice nurse recruitment and retention is actually, I think, a really important issue to bear in mind. And it doesn't really get as much attention as it deserves. But there were also a couple of really interesting things that came out of that conference presentation. The first was that this is very much a national picture, but obviously some areas are going to be significantly more effective than others. And like your work on partner data, Nick, as we've just discussed, the variations can be really huge. And the other thing I thought was quite interesting is that lack of data is a real problem around this. And I think until NHS England and the government sort of get to grips with this, it's hard to see how they're going to tackle the workforce issues So there's no data available on actual vacancies in primary care, which obviously makes it much harder for researchers to assess demand. There's also no data on GP training pathways, apparently. So no one seems to be keeping track of how GP training numbers actually translate into numbers of fully qualified GPs a decade later, which is quite shocking. And the research also said there's not very good data on international recruitment and how many GPs are coming from other countries and how long they stay, and things like that. So one of the key recommendations from the Health Foundation was basically improving data, but was also that you need proper long-term plans to help retain GPs instead of the sort of short-term targets around recruitment that the government currently uses. The researchers said that retention was the biggest lever the NHS has to address the workforce shortage, because that can be used immediately. But I'm personally not really sure the government understands that. You know, as one researcher pointed out, the Department of Health is quick to trumpet the numbers of doctors going into training and tells us that it's at record levels, but that's fairly meaningless unless we have actual figures on how many GPs the NHS needs to meet current and future demand. Another workforce issue that we've been reporting on a lot in recent weeks relates to international medical graduates undertaking GP training in the UK. Many of them are finding they face real challenges around working in the UK because of visa complications when they end training. Nick, can you explain exactly what the problem is with this?
1: Yeah, so there are a number of factors at play that mean international medical graduate or IMG doctors who complete UK GP training may find it difficult to actually join the general practice workforce. So, I mean, coming back to something you were just talking about a minute ago in terms of the, you know, whether we should be looking at the optimistic or pessimistic scenarios that the Health Foundation put together. I mean, this would lean towards the the, the pessimistic, I would say. Um, so, So one factor is that to qualify for indefinite leave to remain, you have to be employed for five years in the UK. So GP training lasts three years. So if an international medical graduate doctor comes to the UK and completes GP training here, they don't automatically qualify for indefinite leave to remain in the country at the end of that. And this is different from other medical specialties where training generally lasts five years or more. So doctors who come to the UK to train in other specialties do qualify for indefinite leave to remain once they qualify. So it's much easier for them to remain in the UK, the NHS workforce. As things stand, after three-year training, uh, a newly qualified international medical graduate GP needs a visa to stay in the UK. And to get a visa, you need a visa sponsor. The government says it's working to try to increase the number of GP practices that are sponsors, but it doesn't actually collect data specifically on GP practices that have this status. And we know that very few practices are currently visa sponsors. Another factor with this is that from a practices point of view, in order to apply to become that visa sponsor, you you have to have a person you want to employ who needs a visa lined up, right? So you can't just preemptively apply to become a visa sponsor. It takes around eight weeks to secure visa sponsor status once you start the process. And what that means is that when an international medical graduate doctor completes UKGP training, they face a race against time. Um, Can the practice they want to work for get visa sponsor status before that individual's existing visa runs out? And what that means is that it's easier for practices to hire doctors who don't need visas. And it also means that these doctors, doctors who find themselves in this sort of race against time situation, are considering options such as leaving the UK to work in who knows where, Canada, Australia, Dubai, despite being trained in the UK. And, you know, obviously the, the UK invests in training those doctors. And they're also looking at options such as working in hospitals, you know, which as larger organisations are likely already to hold visa sponsor status. The
0: BMA and the RCGP, but the RCGP in particular really, have been lobbying the government to get it to take steps to resolve the problem. What's the latest on that?
1: Yeah, so so, I mean, a a while ago, we reported that the government had dismissed concerns raised by the RCGP around this as scaremongering. The government has now replied in more detail to a letter from the RCGP and the, the college says the response is disappointing. The government has now formally rejected potential solutions put forward by the college, such as granting indefinite leave to remain for international medical graduate doctors upon completion of GP training, i.e. before they've completed the current five-year threshold. And they've also rejected the idea of uh, something like an automatic three-month visa extension to allow more time for these doctors to, to find work before their visa runs out. So, yeah, I mean that that's that's where we're at the moment. The government has has rejected some of the uh, solutions put forward by the college, I guess is standing by its its previous claim that being worried about this is scaremongering.
0: obviously, it's kind of madness to be in this situation where we have all these GPS qualifying, ready, wanting to work and them not being able to, particularly after they've spent three years training in this country. But I think people perhaps don't realise that this is a, a problem that's only likely to get bigger, isn't it? Because as GP training places have expanded in recent years, you know the government has made more GP training places available. We're actually seeing increasing number of trainees who are international medical graduates, aren't we?
1: Yeah, that's right. And in the latest intake of doctors to GP training, nearly half were international medical graduates. And doctors uh, who are international medical graduates doing GP training tend to be more concentrated in areas that struggle to attract doctors. So it's really important that at a time when there's a national shortage of GPs, everything possible is done to retain as many of the doctors coming through UK training programmes as possible. But at the moment, that that just doesn't seem to be uh, the case. And doctors I've spoken to in the past week or two say there's a clear problem there are some easy solutions to it and they're struggling to understand why the government seems unwilling to offer flexibilities that could help keep more of these GPs in the UK, particularly at a time when, by its own admission, it's not on track to meet its target of recruiting an extra 6,000 GPs by 2024. The RCGP is called for a job and a future in the NHS for every doctor who comes through GP training in the UK. But at the moment, it's obviously difficult to argue that that's going to be the case.
0: Next up, this week saw the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee hear more evidence as part of its inquiry into the future of general practice. So this was actually an interesting session because giving evidence were NHS England's primary care medical director, Dr. Nikki Kanani, and NHS England's director of primary and community care, Dr. Amanda Doyle. Dr. Doyle was a GP for 25 years and also worked in a management role in an integrated care system. And now she's basically in charge of GP and other primary care contracts at NHS England. And alongside them were Matthew Starr, who's Director General for NHS Policy and Performance at the Department of Health and Social Care, and brand new Primary Care Minister James Morris, who was basically given that job four days before his appearance as part of Boris Johnson's reshuffle following the mass resignation of many, many ministers. I watched that session, so I'll run through some of the highlights. And there was quite a lot that was discussed. But firstly, I suppose one of the, the key things to mention was that Mr Style from the Department of Health made it really clear that it's not government policy to scrap the GP partnership model. So we are talking earlier about GP partners and how you know, we need to support the partnership model if we want to stop this kind of massive decline in the number of partners. And he made it really clear that that's not government policy to get rid of it. So if you remember, there's been a real worry for many GPs after former health and social care secretary Sajid Javid endorsed that report from the policy exchange think tank, which called for an end of the GMS contract within a decade, with GPs effectively becoming salaried in large organisations, including hospitals. Obviously, Mr Javid's now no longer the health secretary after he resigned, which we've not really had a chance to talk about because there's so much else going on. So I guess this idea might have gone by the wayside
1: anyway. I suppose now that Sajid Javid's out of the running as leader, he might be, uh, he might, might be brought back as health secretary after a bit. as the only guy in the room who's got some experience. Oh, and- who
0: knows what's going to happen on that front? Um, but Matthew Starve basically said there was no policy to scrap partnerships and the independent contractor status anyway. Um, Amanda Doyle from NHS England also said um, they weren't interested in scrapping the partnership model either. So that's all quite positive. On a more negative note, Committee Chair Jeremy Hunt asked the panel if they thought there was a crisis in general practice. And the new minister, James Morris, said that there wasn't, uh, although he did concede that there were serious challenges. I think a bit disappointedly, Dr Doyle also refused to use the word crisis and instead called the situation challenging. I mean, I suppose you can see why Morris wouldn't say there was a crisis because, you know, let's face it, the Conservatives have been in power for 12 years. So if he says there is a crisis, it's very hard to lay the blame anywhere else than at his party's door. But I think it's a bit of a kick in the teeth for GPs to hear these people who are overseeing primary care not really seeming to accept the scale of the problem. I mean, when it comes to GP workforces we've been talking about and the massive workloads affecting practices, which are both leading to basically patients struggling to see GPs, and it seems pretty obvious this is a crisis. So, I mean, it really did seem like they were trying to Downplay the scale of the problem. Just so people know, James Morris said he thought the government had, quote, the tools and means, unquote, to address the challenges facing general practice. So I'm sure lots of GPs and practice staff listening to this will be keen to see him and his department using them to actually do something to help. Something else, there was a lot of chat uh, during that session about the coif. As we all know, Jeremy Hunt is keen to see the back of the coif and lots of other targets in the NHS. But there was little sign really from the people giving evidence that something seriously being considered at the moment. So I think we can assume the Quoffs here to stay. But Dr Doyle did say something quite interesting about how it could develop. You know, She was talking about the fact that we now have much more analytics and data available than existed when the QOF was introduced in 2004. So she was saying she would like to see a move towards not just measuring performance based on what practices had done in the past year, but also giving practices the ability to identify patients most at risk of poor outcomes and then intervening. And I think the suggestion there was that NHS England could try to use contractual levers to encourage practices to focus on outcomes. But it kind of sounded like quite early days in that sort of thinking. But it's kind of an interesting direction of travel potentially. One thing she did say, though, was that the new GP contract, which will come into effect in 2024 after the current five-year deal ends, would be based on evolution rather than revolution. No massive changes expected, I guess. Something she was a bit more concrete about, though, was not making continuity of care a contractual requirement. We know the RCGP would like to see more support in the GP contract for continuity But um, Dr. Dawes said it would just be too difficult to do that through the contract at the minute, given the current shortage of GPs. So we talked a lot about workforce today. And one of the great hopes for addressing the workforce crisis, which is a crisis, unlike what the current primary care minister says, is the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, which, as we know, is aiming to bring 26,000 new staff into primary care by 2024 Nick, you wrote a story recently about the scheme which suggests there are some real problems with it on the ground and how it's being implemented. What's going on there?
1: Yes, we've written in the past quite a lot about primary care networks struggling to bring in enough staff through the scheme. But I've been speaking to some specialist accountants who work with primary care networks. There's another factor here that may be sort of playing into the slow recruitment through the ARS. The problem they've identified is basically networks becoming frightened to recruit staff through the additional roles reimbursement scheme because it's leaving them with big cash flow problems. The reason for this is that payments to primary care networks under the scheme are meant to be made a month in arrears and they're calculated on the number of staff that they've brought in by whatever point they're claiming for. But accountants say that, in fact... Payments for staff are often coming through two or three months in arrears rather than just the one. So networks are significantly out of pocket. And there are massive massive sums of, of money involved here. The the average ARS budget for each of England's 1,250 odd primary care networks is going to exceed a million pounds per year by 2023-24 if they maximise their budget, if they recruit the full sort of complement of staff that they're entitled to. And on that basis, if payments are coming through three months late, that means networks coping with a cash shortfall uh, of up to a quarter of a million pounds at a time. I mean, according to uh, the accountants, delays can be caused by... Things like local managers asking for extra information before they approve claims for reimbursement, you know, asking for details of pay slips and things like that. But ultimately, at the moment, because of the delays in this cash coming through to primary care networks, and I think perhaps particularly this is causing problems where networks are not incorporated and you've got an individual practice which is carrying responsibility, perhaps a lead practice across a network. This is something that has the potential to really put practices and networks off bringing in the staff that they are entitled to through the um, additional roles reimbursement scheme.
0: Finally, we've just got time for a bit of good news, which we might need after all of that. Um, This week, the NHS in the four UK countries was awarded the George Cross by the Queen in recognition of 74 years of service and the exceptional efforts of staff across the country during the COVID-19 pandemic. The George Cross is at the top of the UK honours system, joint with the military Victoria Cross, and it's the highest civilian gallantry award. It's given for acts of great heroism or courage in the face of extreme danger. This is only the third time the George Cross has been awarded to a collective body rather than an individual. Chief Executive of NHS England Amanda Pritchards and May Parsons, a matron in respiratory services who gave the NHS first COVID vaccination in December 2020, went to Windsor Castle to receive the award this week. Obviously, all the usual NHS representative groups and bodies welcome the news. But the BMA, while saying it was rightful recognition of the incredible work the NHS has done over the last 74 years and during the pandemic, also used it as an opportunity to highlight that NHS staff deserve more than just a medal. New BMA chair Professor Phil Banfield said that staff deserve to work in a health service that properly values them. He said the government could not escape the reality that the NHS is under-resourced and overstretched. And while that makes this accolade all the more impressive, he said, it doesn't make it right. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick. I'm back next week when I'm talking to GP Dr Gemma Wilkinson, who is clinical lead for Nottinghamshire's General Practice Phoenix programme, which is a workforce support organisation for GPs in the area. Rather fittingly, after today's podcast, we're talking about retention of GPs, the scheme the Phoenix Programme is running to help GPs remain in the profession for longer and what other areas can learn from the work they're doing. In the meantime, you can keep up with all the latest news, effective general practice and access lots of other resources on our website, gponline.com.